Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Gabriella Pinto. Gabriella is a writer and filmmaker from Cape Town. Traversing art and journalism, she is interested in telling stories about the human condition, and her website includes several examples of these, a documentary about a prosthetic leg maker, a short documentary on the artist Amy Ayanda, and a PSA about child trafficking. Gabriella has worked as an arts writer for the online publication Between 10 and 5, where she's written about everything from sneaker exchanges to the Me Too movement. She has also hosted an art and culture show on Cape Town television. She is also an actress, a real live one, with her own IMDb page, and she starred in the films Eye in the Sky, American Monster, and Jamila and Aladdin, and has been a writer on the film Stag Nights. Currently, she's very busy working on two feature films, developing a play as part of the University of Johannesburg's 2020 Playwriting Laboratory, and is a contributor to Politically Aware, a South African infotainment satire show. Gabriella's piece in Living While Feminist is titled, You Look Like a Lesbian. In it, she says, It's almost as though when a certain type of heterosexual man and a certain type of heterosexual woman comes into contact with a straight woman with power who wears the shirt, sneaker, jeans combo, their brains short circuit. They equate women with power, and in particular lesbian women with power, as a threat to their very way of life. Her piece is short, but it explores relationships, the silencing effect of derogatory language, the power of clothes and performance, and the male gaze. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Gabriella. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's a pleasure. You are really involved in a lot of different types of things, so I'm excited to start talking about a few of them. But if it's okay with you, we can just start with your piece. Tell me about the motivation behind writing your piece and why you decided to submit it for publication in Living While Feminist. So it came from personal experience, obviously, and it was something that stuck with me. I kept I kept wondering about it. I kept thinking about it. And the deeper I thought about it, the more I thought about interrogating why I dress the way that I do and why I had allowed someone to call me that, right? Because I'm I'm a heterosexual woman and I I believe that people can be whatever they want to be. That doesn't bother me at all. But I wondered why why was I offended by by being called something that I was not? And for me, it lied not in what I was called, but what the intention was behind that. Um, and so I just circled around it and I, I wanted to unpack what those feelings meant for me, why I felt that particular way and, and how the patriarchy kind of treats a woman sometimes in certain contexts. Yeah, I mean, the scene you describe or that you begin with is a really intimate one where you and your partner are sort of at your most relaxed, brushing your teeth, and you're quite thrown by what he said and in a way unable to respond in the way that you might have if it had been a stranger who had decided to make this comment. So I think many people will relate to that idea of finding it easier to argue their feminist ideals with a stranger on the internet than to argue it with someone close to them. Why do you think that's the case? 
I think it's so many factors. I mean, in, in that particular dynamic, I would say it was a toxic dynamic, to put it lightly. And so because of that, there were a lot of factors as to why I didn't say anything. Number one, the very obvious factor was that we had a busy day ahead, right? So it was like a remark that was made as a throwaway insult. I didn't really have time to like sit down and, and unpack this whole thing. And secondly, I'd just gotten so used to these these types of remarks that it, what it does in that cycle of toxicity and also codependence is that you begin then to just ignore it because trying to address it requires far greater energy than just ignoring it, which I don't think is true in retrospect, but at the time it felt like that. I think also it's very, and I think this this, this relates to feminism as a movement as a whole. It's very difficult to try and make someone see something when they don't want to, right? So that would have to involve a whole long conversation about why we have patriarchal attitudes to women who, uh, you know, dress in a particular way. In my case, I was wearing flat shoes, sneakers, jeans, tackies, I was living in a city that required me to walk a lot, so it was practical, it was also comfortable, and I felt great in that. And so it would need, I would have had to have sat and like unpacked where this attitude comes from. Why do we think it is offensive? And it's very hard to do that and try to convince someone to see otherwise if they don't want to and if they're defensive. So you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I think that's also why I wanted to write it, you know, it's just to make people, to make people think about that. For me, it was, it was less about my personal experience and more about the way in which, the way we, in which we use words to insult people and call them specific things. And why do we do that? Why are we threatening? Where do those attitudes come from? And what do we really mean when we say them? You know, in that instance, I had been told that I looked like a lesbian. And I thought, okay, but underlying that is also one, I think it's a power dynamic. So I think it's, I'm your partner, but you look like a lesbian. You're not listening to me or doing what I want you to do, right? If you were lesbian, I would have no power over you because there would be no attraction between us, right? So therefore, I kind of write you off. And then secondly, I think it's a thing to do with, uh, I would I would venture as far as to say like a disgust at, at someone who is lesbian. So it's like, well, you must look like a lesbian because, you know, you're not interested in me and I can't argue with about anything. And so I have no power over you. And that could be a very crude way. That's my interpretation of seeing it. But I think that that is kind of what the dynamic and that was what was happening within my relationship at that time. I mean, it's interesting because in a world where there was gender equality and where we were tolerant of everybody, regardless of sexual orientation, insulting someone based on their alleged sexual preference wouldn't make sense. It only makes sense in a context where certain sexual orientations are considered as normal, others remain considered as abnormal or different. And so the attempt to try and police 
the way you dressed was an attempt to say, but you don't look like a heterosexual woman, right? A heterosexual woman should be dressing up for men. And I think you start your piece with what you're wearing, how you're encouraged to dress very feminine, and then how you discover a love of wearing shirts of many different forms. And you say, the shirt embodies officialdom, refinement, authority, and power. Like men, it could be almost anything without question. And I'm thinking about the fact that we live in this world where it is acceptable for almost everyone to dress like men, in inverted commas, but it's really much less acceptable for everyone to dress like women. And it made me think of the book, The Cement Garden, which was a compulsory reading in you know, Sociology 101 at Varsity. And in that book... Um, they say it, there's a part where the character says girls can wear jeans and cut their hair short and wear shirts and boots because it's okay to be a boy. For girls, it's like a promotion. But for a boy to look like a girl is degrading, according to you, because secretly you believe that being a girl is degrading. So do you think it's sort of acceptable to, or it feels empowering to wear a shirt because it's associated with masculinity and all of that cultural capital that you describe? And what do you think the importance of addressing those norms and associations is? Um, so for me, it's it's twofold. Like one, it was because I liked it, but we have to go deeper than that and think about why did I like dressing that way? And I like dressing that way because I realized the power that men had. And like in a very in a very simple context, right? As a woman, if you are wearing clothing that reveals your décolletage, for example, where you show a lot of cleavage, men tend to be naturally attracted to that. Now, I'm that in a way is me also boxing all men, and that's not what I'm trying to do. It's just an example. But you get a particular kind of attention from men by dressing in that particular kind of way. And I realized that kind of objectification when I walk in the world and as a professional woman in a in a workplace, for example, I didn't I don't want to be objectified. I want to be there because of what I have to offer as a professional, not because of what I am as a woman, because of what I look like. Yes, I can say in terms of my stories or the kinds of things that I look at, they are from a female gaze. And I think that is important. But in terms of my value and my work ethic, it should be about my work. And more than more often than not, I found that it wasn't. And so the shirt was also a kind of shield. And it was a way to to safeguard myself against that or to make myself less alluring in a particular way so that I could level with men in another way. One of the other pieces in the collection speaks about whatever you do with your body as a woman, it's interpreted as making some sort of political point. So for example, if you decide to shave your arms or shave your armpits or shave your legs or whatever you decide to do, the assumption is that you're doing it for someone else. There's always the assumption that whatever a woman does, it's for performance, it's for somebody else's consumption. And I think your piece did a lot to make clear some of those like day-to-day ways that that plays out. And also made me think of the phrase that we use about women in popular discussions where we say oh she let herself go and it's always used as an insult it's not like she let herself go how freeing she's no longer performing for the male gaze it's sort of used to say you're not performing the way we expect you to and so you have less value because of that so when did you start thinking about clothing in these sort of feminist terms and how has it affected your work as an actress and as a writer and filmmaker diversity we had obviously unisex classes and studying like theater and performance Um, And I think I started to notice 
because there is an intimacy that comes with studying something like performance, right? And it was there that like I noticed the like attention of men. Um, and so that's when I started to realize the way that I dress, the way that I portray myself has a particular impact. Um, and then now being a, being a writer and, and a performer and a director, I think when it comes to women navigating the world, there's so many stories to tell, but we're also still boxed in so many ways. So what I'm finding interesting now is is telling stories about nuanced women, women that aren't cliches, that have depth, that can also ha- that also have the license to just be. Um, and that for me is exciting, but there is still a lot to navigate and there is we still have a really long way to go. Um, in film, we always talk about the Bechtel test, which basically, if there's if there's two, I think, I can't remember the exact rules, but it's basically like, can you get through a film or an episode of a TV, TV series without the female characters talking about men? I mean, it's really hard to believe that the Me Too movement already was 2017. It had its origins. Um, and at that time, you wrote a piece for Between 10 and 5 where you gave some really scary statistics from the South African film industry from a, a survey done by Swift, which was sisters working in film and t- television. Um, and they revealed that a huge culture of misogyny in the film industry and the article stats you gave were 66.7% of women felt unsafe in the workplace, 65% have witnessed sexual harassment, 23.7% indicated that they had been unwillingly touched, and 71% felt that they didn't have a platform or strong support structure where they could address these issues. And I'm wondering if since you wrote that article in 2017, anything has changed in the South African film industry, and whether there's been any deliberate attempt to create the platforms to address sexual harassment. It's complicated. So on one hand, I mean, now we also have like intimacy coordinators on set. People are much more aware of their behavior, particularly men, I think. I think a lot of the misogyny on set comes from this kind of like bro culture where I don't even think that before people knew what they were really doing. Like, I don't think they knew the extent to what they were doing, to how their comments sounded and how they treated women, right? So... On the one hand, we have to call out inappropriate actions and there needs to be consequences for that. But on the other hand, I also had a lot of uh, male colleagues who then would be like, how do I behave now? You know, like what is right and what is wrong? And I always say like the simple answer is, would you treat your male colleague like that? If the answer is like, no, then you shouldn't be saying those comments, you know. There is so much to be done. And it's also to do with gatekeepers. Like who who is gatekeeping? Who is making these decisions? And a lot of the time, the power doesn't necessarily lie with, with the woman. And it's, it's not just like the big transgressions. It's like microaggressions. So for example, I was on set earlier in the year and I had an AD. And as like, as you do, people make conversations, but, and it's, it was a little bit of a jokey conversation. I thought, okay, that's fine. And then one of the questions I immediately got asked was like, do I have a boyfriend? And I was just like, this is so inappropriate, right? It, and it wasn't even the way he said it. It was just the fact that he had to like bring that up at all while I'm on a set with an entire crew like around me and we're about to hit action. Like that is not appropriate, you know? So it's like, we constant, we constantly 
And that's like a very small microtransgression. So like, what do you do about that? Because that's not someone, I wasn't like assaulted. It wasn't, but then you have to say like, hey, listen, that's not appropriate. Um, there's small things that are happening and progress is happening, but we have to make men understand why their behavior is inappropriate, why it is problematic, because often they don't. And then that doesn't just extend to like the film industry. We are seeing those changes, but I also think it's also about seeing changes in the film industry where women have the executive, creative producer control. Women need to be in the decision-making processes and they need to be in the decision-making processes that are not like bottom of food chain. It's got to be like at the top. Things are changing. And there's also nothing wrong with women talking about men because we do that. That is what we do. But we are more than that and that is important to showcase too yeah well i think that's why the the idea of having or talking about rape culture is so valuable because it points to those small daily microaggressions and links them to a culture where we tolerate small injustices against women every single day so there where your acting i assume ad is assistant director um was then saying to you um you know, do you have a boyfriend? What that does to you in that moment is make you aware that you're being sexualized, that someone is thinking about your intimate relationships. And it doesn't allow you to just exactly, as you were saying earlier, exist in the world in a professional way. But it's really hard in the moment to to get to the root of that, to not just say, you know, piss off, I'm trying to act here, which is also, you know, a reasonable response to have. But I think what was so interesting about the Me Too movement, and especially the case around Harvey Weinstein, was the fact that because he was in such a position of power, those type of comments created a context where people felt afraid to say anything because there was a fear, firstly, that they wouldn't be believed and secondly, that other people were sort of fine with it because no one else reacted to defend them when they saw this happening. So I think you're so right about that we need to unpack like the roots of it all so that people can start to understand how their behavior fits into a rape culture. And Jen, it's not, it's not just that, like, it's very difficult to come forward. And so I used to, in one of my previous jobs, there used to be an older male who was a, um, a client of ours, right? And I was working a production assistant job. And every time he would come into the office, and I must have been about 22, 23, and this guy's like in his 60s, right? He would come into the office and he would make these lewd remarks. And my office was filled with young males like me. And not once, like, I would have these conversations with my colleagues and I would be like, guys, oh, they would come to me and say like, wow, he was behaving inappropriately. But the men themselves didn't do anything to reprimand his behavior. And so I had a conversation with my boss and my boss at the time said, no, you like, you know, you need to like stand up for yourself and say something. And of course, being like super naive and it being my first job, I didn't think like, actually, no, my boss should step into the situation. And I remember like the, the fear of like having to confront him and like actually pull him aside and say like, listen, this behavior is not appropriate. And should you do this again, you will not be walking into the office. And like, I was very shaken after that experience. So I can only imagine how terrifying it must be for women who have perhaps had like more serious transgressions committed against them. So it's it's not easy because you, you do get scared of the ramifications, right? And 
it's the thing that like you don't want to be known as like oh a girl that like you can't take a joke you're like super sensitive you're one of those feminists that are like bra burning so you know like everything you have to toe the line and at the same time you you also don't want to like put your your job at risk so it's incredibly complicated but but the more people speak up the more that we are aware of things and we stop being complicit the better things will become. But if we don't do anything, nothing will change. There's so many things in what you've just said there, which is around a lack of support structure. So um, you were in that situation where other people were hearing it, but they didn't even feel empowered enough to say anything. Your boss failed you there because they're the person in, in power who should have addressed that. There's a situation where you didn't want to be seen as like, I think it's in the movie Gone Girl where she talks about the cool girl, where you're supposed to just you know go with the flow, get along, and, and how much social capital is given to women who perform in that way because they make it easier for men to continue behaving the way the patriarchy expects them to behave with no ramifications. Um, and I think what, you, what you're pointing to is that in feminism sometimes it is really difficult to be the one who speaks out first. I think that's terrifying regardless of whether it's a feminist issue or a social justice issue or a race issue. It's really scary to be the one where people might deny the your experience of the truth in order to feel more comfortable. And I think we need, we really do need to think more strategically about how we embolden people to speak out in situations like that. I also think it comes down to like opportunity and the way in which the world is structured, right? If women felt like they had the power and they didn't need men in the respect that, and I'm speaking very much in like the working world and the way that things are structured there. If we felt like we didn't need men and men didn't have any power over us, we would speak out, right? So, I mean, the other day, I think it was yesterday, I saw on Instagram, there was a a woman who works in the ad industry and she was saying like how so many of her colleagues who are women or even men, when when they name an abuser, Um, then they'll say, oh yeah, but I've worked with him before. I can't believe it, but he's not that bad. But yeah, that story wasn't really true. Or like, you know, people shouldn't take those things seriously. And people echo these sentiments all the time. And the reason why these people still have their jobs, still operate freely is because we give them that power. But it's, we have to take collective action against it. But it's also because within the patriarchal structures that be, it's like, well, what do you do? It's the between the less of two evils, right? I mean, I often think of like Harvey Weinstein's assistants and like creative producers who are like women. I go like, how could you allow yourself to be complicit in a system? So I make a judgment there. But and then at the same time, I go, if you want to climb the system to enable more freedom, eventually, you can't help but not be complicit in some way. Um, I watched the film Bombshell. I don't know if you've watched it. Uh, I watched it a few weeks ago, and and it's also it's about the woman who brought down Roger Ailes at Fox News for the ongoing sexual harassment and rape of people of women broadcasters who wanted to work there. You know, he made it very clear in subtle ways that the way to get ahead, he, I think the saying was, to get ahead you have to give a little head. And um, the character that's the character that was played by Charlize Theron experienced that same harassment and now has. Um, progressed to a successful role in Fox and she really you can really see in the film how difficult it is for her to decide 
whether or not to come forward because it, it could mean putting her career on the line, something that she's worked very hard to build. I don't think that it's, you know, it's ever an easy thing to come forward, particularly when we live in a world where women are often not believed, whether it's by their peers or the justice system or the media or whatever. It is something that we need to work on empowering you know, by people to be more active bystanders. So if you're in a room and you hear something, someone saying something like that, to call the person out so that it takes the attention off the person who's already being victimized. You know, how do we work to build understanding that these types of behaviors, words, actions are just not acceptable? We do. And it's difficult. It's difficult. I think it's also about like, you know, we have to bring men into the fold and we have to make them understand what is wrong about that kind of behavior because I also think like calling I think calling it out obviously is very important but what tends to happen then is sometimes depending on the way that we call people out it then creates more antagonism which is also a very difficult thing to navigate but I also think it's women standing up for other women and it's and it's men also in the same way that women are scared of of standing up and saying something, I think men are also scared amongst their own circles of standing up and being ostracized in the same way. But I think we we need to work together in calling that behavior out and in addressing it. That's really, you know, it's it's one thing to say that, oh, I support women's women's rights, you know, I'm a feminist, but then you're still laughing with your bros at like every kind of misogynistic joke that's passed on a WhatsApp group. And there's all these like contradictions. So it reminds me of that quote, by Roxanne Gay, like, I'd rather be a bad feminist than no feminist. Um, so it's very, like, difficult to navigate, but we have to start somewhere. And and I, I really believe that, like, it, it starts with a micro. So if we address those things, then we begin, that begins to trickle towards the larger issues. And I mean, one of the things there is the importance of shining a light on issues. And that's something that you do as in your work as a documentary filmmaker. So can you tell me a little bit about why you chose film as the mode of telling stories? And what is the most interesting documentary that you've worked on? So I think film, I kind of came around to it. It wasn't necessarily something that I chose. I was in theatre and then I decided... Film really interested me for a number of reasons because I think it's more accessible, it's more global, it has more, it has more reach. Um, and in terms of documentaries, I really enjoyed working on my one for Road Reel. It was just a short one, um, and it was basically about my neighbor who's a prosthetist, and he basically made legs for one of his clients who, or patients, should I say, who is a double amputee from birth, and she is a she's a civil engineer and she was a site manager and I just thought there was something very poetic but very powerful about this woman who has no legs who has prosthetic legs and manages this huge contra- construction site which is which is being built by men and so that was really great it was just it was informative for me to learn a little bit more about prosthetics but also just to find out you know like what what life is like and what I loved about it was that Michelle who I interviewed you know, I think often in the same way that we look at like poverty porn in general, we tend to like pity people that have disabilities. And it really just shone a light for me because she in no way viewed herself as a victim. She was just like, well, this is my life and I'm doing fine and I'm doing great. And I don't need people's pity because I'm a a normal human being. Um, So that was really important to me. 
sounds like you enjoy a documentary because it's an opportunity to look at one person's case and then expand it to a broader social issue. Um, and that's something that you're also doing with the satire site Politically Aware. So can you tell me a little bit more about what that site is about and what your contributions to it have been so far? Things that are happening... So Politically Aware was founded by filmmaker, creative producer and editor called Stephen Horn, based on a French satire show. But the idea is that we make people more politically aware. The initial seed was that it would look at trying to help empower and educate South Africa's youth. But subsequently, we've realized that our audience is not just the youth. It's it's a whole mix of people from all over the world and a whole mix of people from different generations and age groups and ethnicities in South Africa. And basically, we're a bunch of people. We're from all, we've got filmmakers, we've got journalists, we've got business analysts. There's like a whole eclectic bunch of us. And we try to just distill and we try to make things simple and easy to understand because we felt that a lot of the time, and even within ourselves, there was this sort of disinterest in South African politics. You know, why is it that people tend to be more interested in what's happening in the States than they are in their own country? Do we even know what our, what our, um, deputy president's name is, for example. Can we even name all the ministers? Like many people can't. So we deal with different things. We've dealt with the issue of ESCOM. We've had an election special. We've dealt with climate change. And most recently, um, we started a new segment called Weekly Aware, which basically is a roundup of what has happened in the week. And our coronavirus segments, we've explored the topic of police brutality in South Africa. And currently, I'm busy working on an episode about the state of the arts in South Africa. So there, I'm a, I'm a contributor. And if there is a story that I think is worth, or a topic that I think is worth exploring, then I pitch it to the team and we, and we work on something and we put it together. And we hope that it will grow. But we keep we keep at it because it's at, at this point in time, it's entirely like self-funded. Well, it's so interesting because it's another way of telling stories, right, which sort of ties together all the different parts of the work that you're doing. And I think with Politically Aware, it's so important not to get to the place in South Africa where, you know, the meaningful analysis of what's going on is only done at a particular level through particular media houses. When we have a more robust media in general that can simplify concepts but also make you understand a narrative thread that that carries across all of these which is really valuable in the South African context where we where there's so many scandals that we forget things from week to week I think it's a really cool initiative thank you I mean I w- like we wish we could all we could all do it more and make it more full-time hopefully we'll get there but also yeah just I think a lot of the a lot of the news or a lot of things that we consume, I, I take like the John Oliver's Daily Show, for example, or even like Trevor Noah, like sometimes I'll just go there to, to find out what's happening in the world rather than actually looking at a particular news site, which is very interesting. And I think that in the States, that's also because their news is extremely polarized. It's just, it's nice to be able to to create snippets of information that are informative and pokes fun at things here and there. Because I think if we didn't have a sense of humor, life could be terrible given the current circumstances with COVID and lockdown and our load shedding. So I have three last questions that I'm asking everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, so don't overthink them at all. But do you have a book that has inspired your feminism? Yes, it's not actually a, a feminist text per se, but it is. A, it's called um, 
I shall not hate a Gaza, doctor, a Gaza doctor's journey on the road to peace and human dignity. And I enjoyed this book not because I have any particular affiliation or stance on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, war, but basically this doctor, Ezeldin Abolesh, his family was murdered during the conflict. He was inside his house with his family and he survived. And one of the things that he really writes about and he says in the book is that when you have two men on their deathbeds, you realize that it doesn't matter what culture, what creed, what religion, whatever they subscribe to, all human beings, we, we really, at the end of the day, want the same thing. And that any change in society is not is not going to come from the government, right? It's going to come from speaking to our neighbors. It's going to come from bridging those common like those gaps. And when we start to do that, we realize we are more alike than different. And that's something that has really struck with me, whether I think about like race, whether I think about gender inequality, is that we're all wanting the same thing. And I think feminism can also, there's a lesson to be learned there, whether we're speaking about like intersectional nature of feminism or we're speaking about how to deal with like race relations in South Africa. I think it's I think we have to realize that we're human beings and we all should be striving for a common humanity, even though that is, I realize, a very idealistic aspiration. Oh, if we don't have idealists, then the world is not worth living in. So, <laughs> And the second question is, do you have a quote that you live by? Uh, Roxane Gay's, I'd rather be a bad feminist than no feminist, no feminist at all. Um, and I think that that for me has become more relevant the older I get um, when I realize that learning is also about unlearning the more we learn the more we unlearn and I think that's that's also important for any like feminist in their journey is that it's okay to have an opinion and it's okay to change that opinion so I would rather have I would rather try my best to be the best feminist I could be than not be a feminist at all mm. I think that's so true. I think feminist growth is something that we really need to make more room for um, because the, it is a sign of wisdom to change your opinion upon the presentation of new information, right? Like sticking to your old opinions just because they were convenient doesn't make really much sense at all. The final question for today is what is your advice for other feminists? For other feminists, I would say it's okay to unlearn things and to change your opinion. I would say don't be too harsh on yourself. The world is an imperfect place. So is feminism and so are people. For me, the internet is a, and I say the internet, but I mainly mean social media. It's an inherently fascinating place, right? Because, and even even when it comes to something like Black Lives Matter or gender-based violence, there can be a lot of like online virtue signaling. There can be a lot of like online protesting. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with protesting online and having those views and opinions online because some people, that is what they like to do. But I also think don't you don't have to feel pressured, you know, and, and it brings me to this idea of cancel culture, which I've also been grappling with a lot and thinking about, you know, just because you're not expressing a stance online does not mean you are complicit and it does not mean that you are not a feminist in your everyday life. Um, I think. Uh, Barack Obama said something a while back. He was speaking about uh, what cancel culture and being a, a woke cancel culture. And he was saying like, there's no use in throwing stones at everyone all the time and calling yourself an activist if you're not doing the work. So, um, and I also think that 
when it comes to that, like it's important to call people out, but it's also important to make sure we're doing work that's not just online. And it's perfectly fine to not be allowed feminist. And by that, I mean, like maybe you are feminist in the very way that you live, but you don't advertise that. And I think that's okay. There's, there's no particular way that you need to exist in the world as long as you're doing your best to be the best version of yourself in your own way. That for me is, is the most important thing. And it's your journey and we all experience it differently. I think that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me about your work and your peace and feminism. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and good luck. Thank you so much, Jen. It was lovely to chat with you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Living Well Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Tune in next week for more conversations with feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.